Hi, I'm Judina Castro, and you're listening to Mayberry with High Rises, where my friend John Maffei and I talk about relationships, life in Seattle, politics, with random tangents. And believe me, there are a lot of them. Hi, this is Judy Nicastro. Hey, it's Sean Maffei. I'm with her, like well, always, like a couple. <laughs> right. Oh my God, are we ever going to get divorced? You'd be a great wife. Oh, I don't know about that. Anyway, we are so glad today to be joined by Mike McGinn, whom I have known since college and who is our former mayor. How so, old were you when I met you? Oh, I was a, la- a little young lass in my 20s. <laughs> Do people refer to you? So like I was talking about the election, you know, it's always Secretary Clinton, you know, yeah. uh, Speaker of the House, Gingrich. Do people re- uh, refer to you now as Mr. Mayor? Well, you know, people get to hang with mayor. Mayor. People get do to they? do that. Nice. Yeah, there's actually a protocol, believe it or not, <laughs> around that. I never knew. I was kind of wondering, too. But the rule is that uh, if there's only one of you at a time, then subsequent people get to keep it. Oh, okay. Because oh. there sh- theoretically shouldn't be confusion because there's only one mayor, so you can't be the mayor, so I can still call you that. This is all I know, is that whenever I saw <laughs> Mayor Rice or Mayor Ullman or Mayor Royer and you uh, say to them, Mayor, how are you doing? You can always just see them like square up a little bit and puff up sure, just a little sure, bit. Sure, sure, sure. Feel good. So yeah, so you can call me right, mayor, call but you can call me Mike. You can so call mayor me Mike. Anything. Does that work for restaurant reservations? Can you throw around the title? Does it gain you anything? You know, I don't try to do that. In fact, this is I because I, some people recognize me, some people don't. And I'm about to tell you a true story. I have had people come up to me and say, "This has happened twice now." Seriously. People come to me and say, I know you. I recognize you. And I yeah. always go, I always say, yeah, I get that a lot. And that sometimes they let, let go. But if they press on, I remember these people just kept pressing on and pressing on. No, no, I know you. Where do I know you from? And so finally I went, well, you know, I was mayor. And uh, they go, no, that's not <laughs> it. <laughs> no, I kid you not. So I don't. So yeah. Funny. So I've never tried it. For, I've never tried I'll to get a restaurant You know what the funny thing is? That, is because that, is, that experience is like, so, don't even try um, do you feel like you get more respect in your household from oh. your spouse, from children, from anyone because you have the title? Because I would think you'd get none, but I'd love to hear from that. No, no. You, your instinct is absolutely correct. There was one place in the city that I was never the mayor, and that was as <laughs> soon as I crossed the threshold of the household. In fact, I'm, I'm sure they took it as their duty you know, for the good of the entire city. You know, to make sure they, you keep know. Keep you humble. Keep me humble. That's right. right. That was That's their job. Right. Did you and ever they, think And they like, embraced that job. I can yeah, just you. quickly on the side. Like, I remembered, like, being, like, at work and having lots of people working for me and thinking I could tell, you know, a team of 20, a team of 75 of what to do. And I couldn't te- tell a team of one of what to do with the household. Did you ever feel that way? Well, that you actually had a certain was, amount of power in public was, life and zero in private? That was that was actually one of my jokes. So that is that I is that you know, in, I was raising three kids and and out of frustration, wow. out of you know, to, to actually feel like I could accomplish something, I had to try to run an entire city because I, <laughs> I couldn't run the house. That was for darn sure. Well, hey, well we're yeah. we're really excited you're here today. <laughs> Thank you. For and that. and I want to. Uh, Say, I, I was going to start this off by joking and saying, "Did you bike here?" But I, you actually did. I, I didn't. I did indeed bike here from Greenwood, just right around the top of the lake. It took about an hour and a half. It was a beautiful ride. It wasn't raining. wasn't windy. Well, that's Perfect. very so when impressive. Did, when did you start biking? Well, like anybody, I think I think I started biking 
you know, in terms of like transportation rather than just biking around for fun, right? Was uh, biking to high school. Biking to high school. I, I saved up enough money from a summer job to buy a 10-speed Atala bike. Yeah. You know, we had to go into New York City to get it because wow. that's where you got a fancy bike. So then. did you grow up in New York? I grew up on Long Island. Oh, Long Island. Yeah. Where so, in Long Island did you grow up? Uh, South Shore, right okay. outside the Queens border I, in a town I called Hewlett. I was born in uh, Huntington, New York, or Cold Spring Harbor, New York. Was, yeah, yeah, much so, further out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, it was it was kind of an off-and-on thing. I, I uh, When I came to law school, I got a bike to get from the house we were renting to the campus, to the gym, and home. Um, and then when I was a lawyer, um, I started trying to bike some more because uh, I'd hurt my foot. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, couldn't run or play basketball. And one thing led to another, and it just became, I'm a bike commuter. I don't bike for fun. I right. like to get yeah. places. Yeah, that's and, impressive. Uh, and Are you and the only great. one? Am I the only one? The bike commuter. <laughs> they the seem one. like a unicorn. More, more and more. More and more. And that's yeah. the thing. A lot of people look at biking as this recreational thing. Right. You know, and, and for a lot of people, and if you go look at the stats, I'll get earnest for a moment. If you look at the stats, generally speaking, people who use bikes for work uh, tend to trend lower income because it's it's an option. Right. It's surprising. Yeah. We think of it as this elite thing. But there's a lot of people who use bikes uh, for getting from place to place, and it it works. Well, it's be cheap nice. and it's fast and it's healthy. It's yeah. funny because I'm thinking exactly what it is. It's usually the guy who's like, "Look at me! I've biked into work. Uh, you know, I'm going to go and uh, you know go take a shower at this place beforehand." And you know, there was a big deal at one point when uh, we were at Microsoft. They tried to get rid of the towels. Yeah, at their beginning. and yeah. people went bananas because yeah. the the bike commuters who biked in said, "Hey, yeah. but, but look, look at look what at, I'm wearing. You this is are what I'm wearing respectful. When I... You look lovely. So, just so you know, he's wearing a nice sweating. pair of slacks. He's wearing a cashmere sweater. He's wearing uh, like an Oxford shirt. Um, and there is was it no fair sweat. to say <laughs> that you are a ten times better dresser than our current mayor? Oh no, no, I wouldn't say that. In fact, when I ran for office, I was really I got a lot of grief, man. I got so much grief for my appearance that I, I really did try to straighten up a little bit just so that, you know, we could <laughs> kind of try to push that one off to the side and actually talk about issues. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's oh my, not always easy. Oh, my goodness. So, oh listen, goodness. it's almost Thanksgiving, and I wanted to know, as mayor, did you get to pardon a turkey? Oh, God. No, no. Thank goodness. No, okay. Thank goodness. I mean, I, I suppose there were um, things we did that were. But that was not one of the things. That was not things. one of the things. Sometimes we in to office do. you do a bunch of goofy stuff. Clothing. That was the one I never liked. Like, you know, having to put on the hard hat with the well carrying the golden shovel. Yes. Did you have big scissors? <laughs> we had giant scissors. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I used to the the parks department had a lot of ribbon cuttings. And what I remember about the big scissors was that there was a person assigned to the big scissors. Oh. <laughs> right? Because this is what I remember. Job. Right, because the big scissors would come out. They'd be given to me. I love the big scissors. And, and what I would do is I would always ask ask if any kids wanted to help me cut it. And yeah, all the kids would cute. rush Sweet. up. And they'd all help me grab the scissors and we'd cut it. But as soon as the ribbon was cut, the person from the parks department who was in charge of the big scissors would show up immediately to take the big scissors back. Oh, wow. And I always like wondered, did they lose the big scissors once? Like, Because yeah, there was totally, such attention totally. paid. They're precious. <laughs> to the They're stewardship of the big scissors. Big scissors were a big joke in Medina because we had a mayor who was particularly ineffective for a long time and loved the uh, the breakfasts and that kind of stuff. And we said the, the biggest accomplishment was the purchase of the scissors. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really excited you're here because I yes. have some questions for you. We're going to get serious now. Yes, a little serious. Okay, All right. Give it a shot. Well, I feel like Seattle has turned into such a dump 
in the last couple of years. Um, it's reminding me of New York pre-Giuliani, where I used to live. And you've got this exploding um, homeless slash drug addict prop population that is all over the city with tents and garbage and everywhere. And then you've got Amazon building, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of space and the city's booming economically, but there's this bizarre dichotomy. So I'd love to hear from you of what happened. Like, why has there been such an explosion in the last couple of years? And, uh, and what would you have, what would you be doing about it? Would we have this problem if you were still in office? There's (laughs) the great question. (laughs) It's a great question. And we'd have some part of this problem. Absolutely. And I can't, I'm not going to try to sit here and argue that, all project, all problems would magically disappear. That's saved for you know the campaign trail if if, if one ever right. gets on it again. Um, but but you know I'll push back a little because I I do love our city and I do think it's wonderful and I think totally. it's got you know great neighborhoods and great people. But the problem you're identifying, you know, is really true. And what we're seeing is that the, those levels of inequity that we those levels of inequity that we remember from New York. You, yes. know, you grew up in yep. New Jersey. I grew up in Long Island. And, you know, you had the gleaming skyscrapers and, you know, the depths of poverty side by side. And I think we're seeing a real rise in inequity in the city. We're very successful economically. We're attracting tens of thousands of new jobs. And we're not creating the, the enough housing to meet that demand. Not even close. No. So rents are, are, are going through the roof. And it's a very divided economy between haves and have-nots, and it becomes very, very visible in the city. And certainly, the the homeless problem has has you know just been exploding over the last two years. It was a very serious problem when I was mayor, but it's become far worse. Do you know why? What's happening? Is it just heroin? I mean, here's where I, I'm very torn on the homeless issue. I have issues with it in this regard. There are women and children and families who hit hard times, horrible times, and they are homeless, right? That is very different to me than somebody who's been on drug, a drug addict, who's homeless or who's living in those Winnebago's or those vans that's in, in neighborhoods. I'm not as empathetic or sympathetic to them as I am to really helping the people that have been you know, working and had medical conditions or for whatever reason, they all of a sudden become homeless? You know, I think it's it's a mix of factors, and I don't think you can pinpoint one factor. And I'll get to the empathy question in a moment. I think it's a mix of factors. I think there are economic factors. Um, you know, the, the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill has been yeah. a long-term problem, started under Reagan. But this state is something like 49th out of 50 in the states in terms of uh, beds to, to for mental health purposes. I mean, we're deeply underfunded. Well, why is that? Because we are such a, uh, you know, kind of a liberal state. And you would think that you look at the leadership and they would all be people who you would seem would be empathetic to uh, mental health crisis. Why are we 49th if that's the case? You know, we've had a, a, a close to a divided legislature. Yeah. And I think there's a big gap. And, and so now you're kind of pushing my button here, you know, as um I think that we're pretty good on the big words, but not so great on the prioritizing Mm -hmm. when you get right down to it. I mean, we're also under a court order for failure to sufficiently fund education. Well, do you think McCleary is actually a problem? I mean, that's a question for you, which is when you put so much prioritization on education, um, 
is that to the detriment of uh, you know fifteen other incredibly important issues? Well, everything is yeah, everything's competing in the state budget. I mean, and it is a challenge to have a constitutional amendment, you know, where a court can interpret what should be the priority. But the constant not even an amendment. The Constitution says highest priority is sure. education. So, I mean, that creates such a conflict because a court is not a legislature to do that yeah, balancing right. act. But you know, they're not even close to meeting it, and that's that's bad. Um, so how do you – we're saying all this, but somehow or another, and, you know, maybe this will get to a topic we were talking about earlier, we found a way to get billions and billions for new highways, and yep. we found a yep. way to get billions and billions for new transit. Right. So and we found a way to get, you know, a few billion dollars to bury a highway on Seattle's waterfront. Sure. Clearly, the regional politicians can come together to find billions of dollars for things they characterize exactly. as priorities. Yeah. So, and and you'll hear things like, "Oh, that's that." Po-, you know, you don't understand. That's a different funding source, et cetera, et cetera. But all the funding sources actually start in one place, which is you know my wallet and your wallet right. and everybody else's wallet. Yeah. And it's the job of politicians to get the money into the right. Do bucket. you think we're innovative in terms of solutions? So one thing that always struck me was that, um, you know, Washington State, which has this McCleary uh, constitutional amendment to focus on education, has really mediocre results uh, in education. And if you look at other parts of the country, you know, they kick our butts left and right. Um, do you think we are an innovative legislature Legislature, when we address problems like this on oh how we God, push the envelope? No. Because why Why do we suck at education? Why do we suck at mental health? Well, here, wait, before we go on there? education that way, let's focus a little bit on the homeless and what's happening there before well, we go but on. I, but I, do you think they, they're interrelated? They are interrelated, which is, I mean, I think the answer is, are we innovative or are we not innovative? And, I, you know, we are talking about government bureaucracies. Sure. And whether it's a government or a non-government bureaucracies, bureaucracies are big. They move slowly. There's a lot of people entrenched who don't want to make change. Um, there are political reasons you don't want change. So against that backdrop, you know, there's always that challenge. And you can't just wave a wand and make it go away. Um, but you can work to make things more innovative and more creative. And there have I can point to innovations with regard to homelessness or treatment of folks like in Seattle, um, an innovation we started but have never really fully invested in was the idea of um, if people want to drink and do drugs, that shouldn't preclude them from putting them under a roof. And it turns out that if you do that, the people who live in that place end up using fewer drugs and getting off alcohol just by virtue of having a a stable place to live. Yeah, it was the – a, a specific, but I is that fair to the other people who are in that shelter? I mean, that was well, a question well, that that one, that's not a shelter. That was a specific housing. piece specific housing. of housing that okay. was that was built for them. I think it was 1811 Eastlake was the was the was the project celebrated across the country, not really um, fully adopted. Another innovation was something called law enforcement assisted diversion. A police officer, rather than arresting somebody for a minor drug offense and sending them through the court system, yeah. where they might end up in treatment was they could send them direct to treatment. Oh, that, see, that's great. That got that got uh, national attention, a yeah. frontline special. So there are there is innovation that occurs. So, you know, are we more innovative or less innovative than other places? You know, kind of it depends. But I guess the reason I would talk about this is that I think sometimes we get ourselves, and we see this now with the homelessness issue, sometimes we get ourselves into the problem. If we only spent the money we had more wisely, then yeah. we could solve the problem. And that's the education reformers sure. claim. We see that now in, in homelessness. There's a debate between the rapid rehousing. What you need to do is immediately rehouse people 
and a lot of the problems will resolve without further government intervention. And those who say, no, we need more expensive transitional housing. But all of these things, you know, to kind of wrap this point up is, yes, we should always be striving for innovation, but it's it's kind of like the Reagan fr fraud, waste, and abuse will balance the budget. Yeah, it it just, can. You can't get all there. You can't yeah. get all the way there with innovation. You do need to... Uh, reprioritize dollars and as well. How, how frustrating was that to you? Because, you know, look, I, uh, I think I came in with preconceptions on city-level government, and I was actually more right. impressed. Right, you were a city councilor, yeah. I was more impressed with the staff than I thought I would be, significantly right. more impressed. I thought they were professional. I thought they were very good. Um, I did feel like there was so much onerous process to get things done, that things right. were slow. I mean, as a mayor, didn't that just kill you in the fact that you have all these things you want to get done, you can't get done because of these onerous processes? How do you break through that? How do you be effective with a big organization that isn't lent to be well, it's, uh, it's like all, nimble? I, I, it is frustrating, and there are all these – I could tell multiple stories, but there are all these – I don't know what the right analogy is. It's like trying to fight through a room full of jello sometimes, or you just feel like there's this web of things that you're like spider webs you're just pushing aside all the time. Yeah, one small example, um, we had a deep budget deficit, and we had to save money, and yeah. it's like, uh, here's our phone budget. And I'm like, well, instead of giving all these people phones, they already have phones. Why don't we just reimburse them for a portion sure. of their yeah. phone, right? That would save yeah. money. And wow, that was very common sense. Did the union push back on you? The union didn't even have to push back. Like the union guy in the room, not the union guy, but our, the guy in the room who was our chief negotiator with the union said, Mayor, that phone is a condition of employment now. If yeah. you take away the phone, you're actually reducing his pay, and we have to bargain for that. I said, are you, you hold it. Oh, <laughs> Isn't that wow. nuts? Same thing with cars. We were trying to reduce the number of vehicles the city owned. Yeah. And a lot of police officers had gotten into the habit of using their car, to, using sure. the police car to go home and come yeah. back. And we're like, no, that's they can commute. Like, why are we subsidizing their commute? Sure. Same argument. So there, there are all and, these. And, of course, you had to give up on it because it wasn't worth your political capital to go fight on that point, right? Well, I'm, i got to balance the budget right now. Yeah, sure. And this negotiating process might take a long time. I don't know how those turned out, but we, we instructed them to push. But, yeah, there was not a simple cost-cutting measure there. It no. turned out. You had to push for it, and it would take years to wind its way through yeah. the process. It's definitely challenging with the unions, but the city unions were pretty good. You just can't move fast. Um, but wait, so let's well, go. Why were they pretty good? I, I mean, that's an because, interesting question. Well, that, that is an interesting thing. Well, I think because they were very open. They were open to discussing what changes could happen. I didn't think that they were all that unreasonable, except for the police union. The police union's always unreasonable. Well, you, you kind of have to. It, it's, it, I mean, they're fighting for what they want. Um, but if it's, if they feel like you're coming to the table and yeah. willing to bargain, then, then it can open so up a little we, bit. So we have negotiations Fairly. in our city with three or four different unions. And, you know, the, it, it'll be interesting because you'll have the Teamsters, you'll have the police union, and they'll push. And they will push for things which are um, unreasonable um, just as an opening salvo. And you know we've had oh, you know well that's that's negotiations yeah but sure, start but, out that but, way but just to, to make sure they get their three hundred they get their three yeah. percent guaranteed raise which I get why they want it but now you have this weird thing where you have a group of citizens who are getting three percent raises every month which doesn't seem huge but it adds up um, and you have finite resources like you've talked about with your budget. So how do you actually we, make we, it? You we ended up actually, we actually got 19 unions to give up a guaranteed 2% raise wow. in the recession. That's wow. fantastic. We opened the contract. Now, we gave them something on health care. Yeah, but, but we still, saved, but we saved money at the end of the day. And 
And and that small amount, you know, is now a new baseline. So it actually yeah. saves you money every year out into the future. So that that was big. But there were other things. Like part of it was just, you know, some of the things just really aren't that defensible. They're kind of embarrassing. For example, the guy that cleaned the bathrooms at the parks at the time couldn't change the light bulb. Because sure. yeah, that had to be ridiculous. done by the electrician union, not the, yeah. not the bathroom cleaning, you know, the, the union that represented the people that cleaned the bathrooms, the maintenance guys. So it, those were the types no, of things. Ridiculous. But you could get those things so, changed. Yeah. Okay. By we have one thing ads. before we move on because I know you want to get on. But I, I, this is one of my hot points since we have yeah. the mayor here. I'll ask you this. Um, tenure versus merit pay. Um, everyone wants to come and say, hey, we want the best education possible. We want to reward the teachers that are doing the best job. Um, you know, we have a pushback by the teachers union on merit-based pay versus tenure-based pay. You have a pushback on charter schools. We all fundamentally know we want merit-based pay. We want charter schools. We want what's best for our kids. How do you balance that when you're a mayor? You have a group that obviously supported you probably overwhelmingly, the teachers union. Well, he doesn't. The city, the education. City doesn't run the school Yeah, district. they don't run the schools. But I, think, but I think the thing is still there. I remember when I came in, the, yeah. one of the issues was, well, how do we deal with the fact that um, raises and promotions, and et cetera, are based, and, and layoffs. This was actually the biggest thing. We had to lay people off. Sure. So, wow. so it was the least senior people were getting laid off. Right. Which is challenging. Very yeah. challenging. Because sometimes they're your better employer employees. Yeah. And, and so I was like, well, why can't we do it on the basis of performance? And I expected to hear back, because that's what the rules say, actually all of the contracts permitted performance-based decision-making, but we didn't have any procedures in place to actually distinguish performance between employees. Oh, wow. I mean, oh, that's interesting. So, there so you actually culture. have that in Seattle? That's yeah, great. There's not a, but yeah. there's not a culture of performance-based evaluations. Were you able to implement it? Did you guys try? I, I, we tried, uh, and we were on the, you know, but it was the type of thing where you really had to I mean, this is a this is a this is a multi-year, yeah. multi-department. That's super because we had FIFO in, in, in Medina. Yeah. We have FIFO first in, first out. So we, if we hire a rock star, and then we have to have a budget cut, right. that rock star yeah. is out the door. Yeah, that's a problem. I know, and that was part of the pushback we got from departments on budget cuts. Was like, don't make me get rid of your yeah. rock star. Don't make yeah, that that's going to be too hard. So you know, figure out how to pay for that. So we did work at trying to uh, get. But you, but you think about how you have to cascade that down through an entire structure of managers actually evaluating employees in a way that will distinguish between them. Not everybody gets a great reference type of thing. Yeah. Right. And we were we were going down that path, and you know I, I would have liked to continue down that path. <laughs> I, well, maybe I you, couldn't. Maybe you can I get couldn't. back there. That would be fun. Okay, back to the homeless. Yes. Okay, and this dichotomy between. Uh, some of the drug addicts, oh, yeah, homeless, yeah. yeah. The empathy question. You know, I, I, I just I don't personally tend to go there about who I should be empathetic to because I feel like if somebody – I think that there's such inequality in our city and that so many people, you know, can't find their place in our economy. Granted, our economy is booming, but there's still people that can't find it. And I just think we're all better off if we can figure out how to give somebody the stability well, of shelter because that's that's just a step. I mean, how did, how did we get to a point in our culture where it's somehow it's it's become normalized that we've got like 3,000 people a night sleeping outside well, in the city? That's what's so that's, crazy. See, that's what's so disturbing to me. It's not that I'm, heart, I'm not completely yeah. heartless. It's just when did 
tents all over downtown. I'm stunned. Every time I go downtown, I'm just stunned at the amount of tents and garbage and stuff. When did this all of a sudden be okay? And it is okay. I was down there in Pioneer Square a couple months ago. There was a guy passed out on the middle of the sidewalk. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and everybody's just walking around him. And I was sort of fascinated of, oh, my God, no one's helping. It was just sort of the normal stuff. We're just, we've totally normalized this. And get people rehab. Like, I'm all for put people in rehab. Give them the help they need. Or, or just give them a, a safe place where they can get shelter. Because I do think people can, and when I say shelter, that might be an overnight shelter. It, it might be day centers. It, it might be tents. It might be small structures. It might, but, but okay. something where literally, if you, I mean, you got to realize that these people deal with on a daily basis, you know, most shelters push people out first thing in the morning. Well, that's it. There aren't enough. So how would you, yeah. how yeah. would you, what would you be doing right now? Like, what would you do? Or what did you how do? Because in Pioneer Square, honestly, yeah. there's been public drunkenness in Pioneer Square for the for last long, 20 years. Yeah. yeah. It, it never stops. I mean, it, it, that's the place where you see where people are. Well, that's because some of the shelters are down there. there. And you have to realize that there's also, you know, that there there's a spectrum of, you know, from, from, Easier to much much harder cases yeah. you have to deal with. Yes, absolutely. Right. And and so the, the idea that you know one one should aspire to zero, but but recognize that the hardest cases will be the most difficult because right. there can be very difficult mental health issues when you're how, dealing how did, with somebody. How did the police deal with that under your administration? You know, it's I, I think the policy. Here's where I think the policy breakdown has come. First, yeah. I'll say what I, I think the city of Seattle has uh, has a relatively it's, it's where you balance it. I'm sorry I'm being not terribly articulate. The people of Seattle and the government of Seattle kind of has, has, has had three basic viewpoints on this. You know, one is that we are going to work to provide shelter to anyone who needs it, mm-hmm. right? That, that we should have a place for people to stay. Um, and then the next one is that you really can't, you know, sleep outside in, in public areas. Um, and finally, that you really shouldn't move people from where they are if they're not bugging everybody unless you've got a place for them to go. That right. was kind of the balance. So that's where we were. So when I took office, um, the form, the mayor before me, Greg Nichols, had been very uh, adamant about sweeps. And, you know, he swept the jungle, for example, which mm-hmm. is uh, under the, the, the green spaces under I-5 south of downtown. He'd swept them every quarter. He went in and cleared wow. them out. And there was a lot of pushback from the human services community that that was too harsh. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just too unsettling. People lost their stuff. We came in and we um, became more disciplined about the notice that was given to people, the attempt to connect them to services, and things like that. And we also became, frankly, a little more open to, if it's not bugging anybody, we're not going to do anything. But if it is, we are. Not bugging anybody isn't the right thing. But we'll, we'll, turn, a blind, crime. we'll, we'll turn a blind eye to an encampment if, if there isn't a public safety or health issue. Is, is our, our viewpoint. But if there is, we'll act on it. And so we, we ended up clearing the jungle, too, during my term um, at, at different times. And we did lots of uh, clearing of, of encampments. But the flip side of that was we were working to expand the amount of shelter we had as quickly as possible, too. How were you doing that? And so that was that? the other side. Well, there were a couple of things. One was, you know, just the amount of money we were putting into shelter, you know, making the city hall shelter permanent, taking Fire Station 39 up in uh, Lake City and making that a winter shelter. So and turning existing it, buildings, city-owned yeah, buildings into shelters. And making it easier for uh, um, people to have, you know, 
tent encampments so long as they were regulated and safe. And that was something that Greg Nichols also did not approve. You know, we're not, or he, he was more limited. We expanded the number of places that could host them. Churches could now do it as a matter of right. Did you actually the rest. give funds to churches? I was interested. Did, did you, did, could you give uh, public funds to churches to go and provide uh, these services? I, I think that if somebody is providing a service that doesn't, you know, um, run afoul of the establishment of religion clause. It yeah. doesn't matter if they're religiously yeah. based so long as their service is not religiously based. So there, I don't, I can say off the top of my head, but I'm sure that there were churches that were religiously, I'm well, guessing I, that would were. just seem like they want to solve the problem. Sure. We don't have enough beds. Is that going to be a way well, to this, And this was an example, right? Like there'd been a, and I don't want to get too far down in the weeds, but there, there had been a rule limiting the number of tent encampments in the city to four. And they had to move uh, every three months. And, right. and where they could locate was limited as well. And we kind of opened that completely up. And then we tried to open up some city-regulated encampments as well. So all of it was just different ways to get at it. So, for example, the feds, even then, were cutting funding for cities. And we rebalanced our budget to protect sure. the homeless funding. We cut from other places to rebalance the budget to prioritize that. Um, but now the city's booming. Yeah, big the time. The city's booming. I was just looking, and, and to give you an example, the, I mean, the general fund of the city is now up to one point two billion a year. You know, when oh it, it was around nine fifty or nine sixty yeah. when I was wow. mayor. So there's another two hundred and fifty million in the system. Um, Amazon and big companies are doing great, and it is in part that pressure on housing that's driving you know, a portion of the homelessness problem. People can't afford the rent. Yeah. And why not ask these successful companies, you know, to, to chip in? And when I say chip in and ask, I, I don't really mean that. I mean, let's, you know, let's, let's try to capture some of the wealth that our city has created. And let's face it, Amazon isn't here because we got cheap land or cheap parking or easy commuting. They're right. in downtown because they want to – all the benefits that a city provides them, which includes really talented uh, potential employees. And and those talented employees are here because we're diverse, because we're urban, because yeah. we're walkable, because we have transit. And that was something that everybody in the city of Seattle created. created. And now that wealth, that, that value is driving us out of the city. You know, yeah. let's just tap into that. That's one of the things I would do is – really dramatically scale up the funding we have to provide shelter. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's an accurate statement. Amazon is here because Jeff Bezos was from here. He had his family here. He was an amazing entrepreneur who decided to put his roots down here. Yeah. Don't you want to have an environment where um, businesses desperately want to be in your locale? Yes. And you had this whole argument. I remember this. when you know, Remember had the Boeing negotiation two, three years ago yeah. where um, they were going to – you had – Governors lined up around the block making pitches, including Jerry Brown, bring your plants to California. Don't you want to make it as business friendly as possible? Oh my God, yes. we are so business friendly. <laughs> we are. People I hate I am that. so sick of that People argument. That is the that. biggest BS argument. But every business no, owner every will tell you how onerous Washington business, is. Every whining business. The, how many there businesses are have millions you run? Of, First of all, I was on the Seattle City Council, and I heard from thousands of people. How many businesses? And there was always one. There are certain groups that whine incessantly, 
And Seattle is very business friendly. We gave away hundreds of millions in tax benefits to co- to companies to come here. What I don't even remember how much. Isn't that the game? No, actually, it should be leave, the game. No, if no. Boeing's going to leave and get that yeah. from 19 other states, are you better off having Boeing leave uh, and go to some other state, or are you better off keeping it? Handing out huge tax incentive is, to use an East Coast phrase, a mugs game. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to impoverish your your city and your state and in a way that won't, won't pay off in the long run. Bezos did locate here because he's from here. Absolutely. And we worked to land Amazon. We did. We, we, they came to us and said, we want to expand in downtown. Can you, can you work with us? And we said, absolutely. Right? They didn't want to find a hostile city government. But we also landed, you know, Brooks headquarters moved from Bothell down to Fremont. Yeah. Google has 2,000 employees in, in Fremont. Facebook opened up an office here. A lot of that tech stuff derives from, you know, Microsoft being 100%. successful. Yeah. Right? Like, let's not preclude that. But to me, it's fascinating that, that Microsoft opened in a greenfield with a big campus setting. And we just recently had Weyerhaeuser close their Federal Way campus located on I-5 and move downtown to Pioneer Square. Wow. And that, that is because the city is attractive. So what I'd argue is that the, the real attraction for a city is not uh, to try to hand out tax breaks as incentives to get people there. But the real incentive for a city is to have the type of place that, that people want to locate. It depends and on what business yeah. you're in. Absolutely. So when you have a tax—I was a— as Peter was as well, Judy's husband, we worked at Microsoft for 10 plus years. Microsoft has created a huge amount of people that are highly skilled, brought them into right. the area. And it turns out that if you're a tech uh, company, it's significantly more economically feasible to go and place yourself in Seattle than to place yourself in the Bay Area because workers are less expensive. It's less expensive to do business operation. When you have a finite amount of laborers with a skill, skilled laborers, in this case, tech workers, um, you will get these centers where they ha- host around. Or, and Seattle is definitely one of the top one or two and three are in the country. Um, when we talk about different types of businesses, whether it's Boeing, whether it's Warehouse or these different areas, um, you have to create an environment where people want to stay. And you may say, hey, we don't want to give tax things because that doesn't work out in the long run. But what really hurts is not having high-paying jobs. And we want to have as high-paying jobs as possible and you want to have a policy that brings right. it up. Right. So I think you want a policy that, 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 that is – your policy should be built around how do you create wealth in a city, mm-hmm. you know? And then if, once you create that wealth, you can use that. Some, some, somebody's got to pay for the streets, the yeah. public safety, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so what is the set of policies that do that? And my philosophy has always been like let's look at what our economic bright spots are. And let's grow those because in a world economy, cities compete. You know, cities get identities about how they compete. We're actually really lucky because we have multiple identities in which we compete effectively, right? We mentioned tech. You know, retail turns out to be one as well. Like we're headquarters for REI and Nordstrom, which is also – and Amazon. Um, It it turns out – But tech, biotech are the two big areas. Tech and biotech, but let's not – And you have a skilled labor force. And we got a skilled labor. We also, it turns out, have one of the best clusters in the Puget Sound of maritime industries in the world. You know, and that's something, you know, that's great. Um, I tend to tourism, which, yeah, by the way, tourism, by the way, is an export. 
It's in, instead of like, oh. it is, believe it or not, it's an export because instead of sending our products over there and they spend money and send it back, they just fly here and spend the money directly. So it actually counts as a positive export. So tourism, the quality of our downtown. Was I Ichiro think the best thing that ever happened to Seattle? Ichiro tourism? was great. Ichiro was great. And, and our neighborhood businesses, et cetera. So I would rather place thousands of small bets on companies that might grow. Yep. and create the environment in which they want to locate here and support people coming up. And frankly, our immigrant and refugee community and the talent they bring, you know, um, to to creating a vibrant place as well. Music and entertainment yeah. is another one. If you look at it, nightlife is actually an economic development strategy because that's the other reason Amazon wants to be here because their employees want to go out to clubs. Oh, my God. Da so yeah. all of these things, I believe, is, is how you make a, a lot of small bets – on, on what to do. And I don't know, you're a tech guy. Should we have a distributed system of economic growth or should we invest in the mainframe? Boeing is the mainframe. A big, a huge investment in Boeing is investing in a big mainframe to solve it. Are we better off having well, a lot of Well, unfortunately, we get, uh, <laughs> these things are very gray. What you said, you don't want to give tax insights, but you don't want to lose someone at the same time. I would say that, uh, and it's interesting, and we'll, kind of the next thing, which is we want to have um, I think everyone agreed we want to have as big a tax base as possible. The bigger the tax base you have, the more you'll be able to deal with mental health. You'll be able to deal with all these issues we want to deal with. How do we make that happen? We want to have as successful industries as possible. How do we have as successful industries as possible? I think it's a two-base thing. Number one, you have a skilled workforce. We have that. That's a great thing. That's why Seattle is such a great city because we have such a skilled workforce. The second one is how do you make it so that lots of people want to start businesses here and say, here's where I want to start it. Right. That's a challenge for a mayor. It's something everyone has to work on. Right. And and I don't know. You were asking if you ever run a business. I actually oversaw a city that was in the depths of recession with 10% unemployment. And I can't take yeah. credit alone because it's the city that created this environment that made us so popular. But we worked as hard as we could to make it easy for people but to there was do a nationwide, here. there was a nationwide recession. Yeah. We got hit less than, much less than other people. Yeah. Well, we did. We did get hit less than other people, and we came out of it a lot stronger than other people. And I do think... Because tech rebounded so strongly. I think, and tech rebounded as strongly as it did because, I, because place is one of our strongest economic assets. And, and a, a good place is a place that is also has equity. And that's one of the things, you know, that, that brings us back to the, to the homelessness issue. So, and all so, these other things we talk about, these granular investments in place. And that's something that mayors can okay. so would you too. So would you tax the big companies? Like, how do you get the Amazons, the big companies that are in downtown, to help out with the, what's happening of the, diversif or the uh, segregation of people now? What do we do? What would you do? Well, it's, it's interesting. When we did the first Bridging the Gap, back when, uh, which was a transportation levy, uh, and that was done under Greg Nichols, uh, the mayor before me. There were, it was three places that funded that. One was property tax, one was uh, a parking tax, and the third place was a, a per-employee tax on, on major employers. Yes. And yes. I remember that. I remember, remember the per-employee yeah, Right. The per and, in, tax. and in 2009, the year I was running for mayor, it was the Chamber of Commerce's highest priority to get rid of uh, that per-person employee tax, so and they won, and it was eliminated. Um, and why did they want to get rid of it? Because that's what the chamber wanted. Yeah, that's... But why did the chamber want that? Because they, you know, because the chamber has to go back to its members and say we got to win, 
and that was a way to get a win. Meanwhile, the chamber had been for it back when we were yeah. going to fund everything. What was it? I mean, sometimes there's symbolic wins, and sometimes there's meaningful wins. Was it, it was, a symbolic win? It was, was mainly, it, meaningful? it was, it, it was, the, the money was, in the, in terms of the city budget, not large, but meaningful. It was about $5 million a year. It was a 25 per person uh, tax, and you could entirely avoid the tax if you showed that you were handing out bus passes to people. That's right. right. So, so it was... <laughs> So I think it tended – I think it leaned towards the symbolic yeah, as totally. in we shouldn't be taxing employers People on number of employees. People go crazy when they think their taxes are getting raised. And I even see in the little yeah. local city, we raise our utility tax, which means you pay $23 more a year, yeah. which is nothing. It's $80,000. But people are like, oh, you've raised our taxes. That's horrendous. Um, but that's, that's so I, I think it. I think it was leaning more towards symbolic. Yeah, I don't think I do it too. They, they, people complained about how do you How do you create no. in this see, world no, – how, how do you create in this world – You. We obviously a big city, lots of things yeah. going on. We talked about how it's tough to get things done when you have big budgets and big corporations, not corporate, big big masses of people you need to work with. And we are so hard to solve all these issues. How do you create an environment that um, lowers burdens on businesses so it makes it business attraction while they're paying oh their fair Oh, my fare? God, again. We'll, we'll, oh, we'll my God. There, You're but, so Republican. But I'll, I'll, this drives me crazy. I know. I love. I love talking to Republicans, and and I I, oh. I I think I'm a Democrat, but I'm not so sure the Democratic Party thought so when <laughs> I was in office. So, so you sure are a Republican in this town. <laughs> so I'm kind of a I'm kind of an oddball. I'm not sure I, I quite fit, fit in. But to get back to, I'll come to your point, but kind of to go a little further on, on Judy's point, which is that, um. We can't keep going back to the property tax again and again exactly. and again. That's a problem yep. too. And and a lot of that property tax is indeed paid by downtown because they have the most valuable yep. property. But for a lot of other people, that property tax becomes a burden that they yep. can't support. So I think it, just having a more diversified tax base, I think, would be more equitable in the city. So that's one of the reasons, I just like we did with funding our first transportation levy, we should go back to trying to diversify a little bit. And we do have successful companies, and I don't think this tax will drive them out of town. God, fact, no. We're getting tons of new new employers. So it's, a, it's an equity thing. About creating an environment and reducing burdens, I, you know, one is the, the level of the tax burden. The other is the, the policies you have and the quality of service you provide, you know, in the city. And I, that was, you know, that is a challenging thing in a big place, how long it takes to get a permit so or something. So my wife, small business owner for 10 years, uh, a huge, huge liberal, huge Democrat, um, would complain ad nauseum about how difficult it was to do business in the city of Seattle. And, you know, this is a person who, uh, you know, vote Democratic cross ticket mostly, very, very, very liberal on almost all these policies, and she's pulling her hair out. Um, There was a thing where they were closing their business, and they got audited. And they were like, well, we're closing our business. They're like, well, it's your tenure. It's time for you to get audited. Th- that but was they just got audited apropos. by who? The city of Seattle? Yeah. What is the state city? of Washington? State oh, of Washington. state of Washington. That's state not Washington. the city well, of well, Seattle. Well, in general, it's the same but thing. No, it is No, it's totally different. It's the same thing. No, it totally changes. You may not have the ability to affect it individually, but you, as a business owner, depending on whether it's the city of Seattle giving you a hard time, the state of Washington giving you a hard time, there has have to be something where you feel like. I'm gonna tell you a story. I'm gonna tell you a story. I was looking at. We decided we were gonna. We worked on regulatory reform. That was the other thing that kind of cracked me up. I kept wanting to change the name, mm-hmm. right? That was like our internal name. We called it regulatory reform because that's what it was. But I didn't want to use that name because it was such a Republican name. But somehow or another, it <laughs> stuck, right? And we looked at it for um, 
you know, how do we uh, generate, in my case, there were environmental reasons why I wanted to make it easier for people to open up stores in neighborhoods. That's right. right? Small it's businesses. Small, Right. You should be able to walk to a corner store and not have to get in your car to drive to a grocery store, yeah. right? Like, that's an environmental thing and a anymore. business thing. No, they do. They, they do. In, in Seattle, they in, do. And they do. Oh, they Very few. Do. You look not, at that small retail as uh, and, and not blown enough. Up. And not yeah, enough. Not enough. Yes. By our biggest employer. And, <laughs> and then, right. That's true. That that's yeah. true. And there was also, you know, a running a home business, um, making it easier for a small apartment building to get through environmental review. Come on, a small apartment building in a city is not an environmental negative. Right? Yep. If you follow all the rules, it's going to be an environmental positive. So there was a bunch of things we did there, but we also looked at doing uh, restaurants. And, oh, my God, like the first part of the job was just to map all of the rules that a restaurant had to go through. And I remember – Sitting and and I and I would the team would come in and brief me as the mayor was sitting right. around the conference room table with all the different departments that touched restaurant permitting yep. a lot yeah you know and then there's state departments as well and I was like well what's the you know what's the pathway for for doing X like can somebody just describe to me how one gets through and everybody just sat there and finally the head of our office of economic development said well actually nobody really knows. You know, and it turns out wow. like there are conflicts in this process. And that was like the first part yeah. of the job was just mapping it. There are conflicts in this process that, that from an analyst perspective, they didn't know how restaurants got through it. You know, somebody – oh, the, the height of the fence. Like what was the height of the fence that if you have the fence around your outdoor cafe, oh what's the height of that fence? Right, like, Maybe you should run on this issue again. And do the height <laughs> of bureaucracy. I mean, that would be, everyone, regardless who you are, hates bureaucracy. I know. Yeah. So this is. So let me tell you one of the things we did because you can you can see it. Everybody sees it. It can upset you. But how do you you know thread your way through it? One of the things we did was our office of economic development had people who literally cold called businesses and yep. just talked to them about what That's they needed. That's great. We held a we launched a jobs plan and we had a jobs sub cabinet. <laughs> this was funny too. I launched the jobs plan and at the press conference I said, and we were in the depths of the recession. We need more jobs. We need yep. to support business. And uh, you know, I said, I'm going to work every day on getting more jobs to Seattle. You know, this is what happens when you get behind a uh, a lectern as a mayor. Yep. You start, <laughs> and I remember coming back and. And Ethan, my, my chief operating guy, said, every day, huh, Mayor? I said, yeah, yeah, I said it. And he goes, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. What are you going to do? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, uh, well, let's have a weekly meeting of a job subcabinet. Yeah. yeah. And what we did was, and this was great, so what we did was we elevated the Office of Economic Development as a champion for businesses within the city. And we had representatives from every department in the city, and we would just flag issues. And one of the things that would happen would be OED would come in and say, you know, this uh, tugboat company down here on the Duwamish wants to build a bigger building than the law allows currently. Yep. And and I'd be like, well, Diane, can we do something about that? The head of our, you know, land use division. And and that's what a mayor can do. And in fact, only a, only a mayor can do in, in this bureau. It's like somebody's got to continually be leaning on yeah. the silos to work across silos and solve problems. Because if you stand back from that and just let the silos do their, you know, role for you a while, but that's they, they bark down. pressure yeah. on the silos? I mean, that's one thing. Which do you is, feel you, awkward? Yeah. yeah do you want to give – you, well, no, that's a question, right? You have a mayor. Right. You have a big city. You yeah. have these policies that are in place. You know that sometimes these policies may be onerous or not right. Um, you know, but you probably want your staff to fix it. How do you actually – how did you try to manage that? Well, that was one. One was just continuous contact. And it was funny. When I took office, I thought that um, mayors worked on really important things. 
right? <laughs> and departments worked on the less important yeah. things, yeah. right? Like yeah. I was – vision and big policy, and they were the implementers. But one of the things I discovered was part of your job was resolving disputes between departments. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter how big the issue was. You, I mean, in the ideal world, two departments would come together and make a reasonable solution. But they're both driven by their own imperatives, which can make it hard. So that, that was the job subcabinet was, was part of it. I, I did town halls where I'd go out into the community and people would ask me questions. I'd do uh, uh, industry working groups. We'd sit down with every industry working group, those bright spots we spoke right. about earlier. They'd talk to me. That was actually part of our checklist for the jobs then. Yeah, that's great. Right? Like when we came back from the biotech guys, they were like, um, this is what they wanted down there in South Lake Union. They wanted reliable power. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. if you've you got 20 years of malaria research in the freezer, you want reliable power. Right. Number one. Um, they wanted second floor labs. Can we change the fire rules so we can have labs oh, on wow. second floors? And more bike lanes, please, because our employees love them. Right? Yeah. So that was that was what they wanted. <laughs> okay. Those would be the types that we weren't talking about we're doing for economic disadvantage. <laughs> They're doing it for the exercise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and also it's the it's the best way to commute yeah. in in a crowded urban center. A three mile bike ride beats hell out of bus or or, or Do car. Do you uh, just did, so I we so, so I want to just uh, let, me, let me just finish this thought. So we would just we would just you know you just troubleshoot those things, and that was in part of mayor's job. But you had to be present. You needed to have the continual back and forth. But I didn't have to make the decisions. A lot of times something would come to me from one of these forums or from a town hall or from a letter. I reviewed all the letters that came in and out. Wow. Yeah. Well, I had staff write them. They worked on them. But I looked at them. And occasionally one of those letters would do it, right? And I'd like – and we had – we started with weekly full cabinet meetings. But we switched every two weeks, then three weeks. And it was the same time every week. And we'd invite him in the room. Or after the end of the meeting, I might go, I might call up our SDOT guy, and and I might call up our facilities guy and say, um, hey, guys, can you talk to me for five minutes? And I would go to him, hey, I just heard about this thing. It sounds like it's a conflict between your departments. What's up? Yeah. And they would just say, Mayor, let us get back to you, is what they would say, <laughs> right? <laughs> let us get back to you. Because department heads don't want to go to the mayor to resolve little differences. So is that constant presence, constant raising, constant back and forth. And, and I'll add one more thing to it, which was the department heads knew I had their back, too. That's you. They knew I had their back. Yeah. We built trust over time. I never threw one under the bus. We let them go. They re- Actually, they all resigned, pretty much. But but we never threw them under the bus. So they knew that they could elevate issues, and they, they wouldn't get punished for elevating um, they would be thanked. Um, the biggest problems was when people didn't elevate issues. So we tried to create a culture of problem solving. But that just that just helps you like make the system work. Right. There's still deeper problems that take years to solve. Well, and I want to give you kudos for going out into the public and talking to people because I think a lot of times when the executive doesn't, if the executive is only relying on staff – to have information filter up that's very problematic. Or you have to hear f- directly from constituents and business people. I can guarantee you that a mayor hears from donors yeah. <laughs> because yep. a mayor has to call up yep, and sure. ask for money, yep. and they will hear from the lobbyists and the important yeah. constituents. But you really – I always <laughs> wanted to go over the heads of the lobbyists yeah. and go straight to membership whenever I could because I needed to try to make a judgment between which one of these things – would you get a question really ever? Would people ever yell at you on the street? Oh my was there God, like yes. weirdness there? <laughs> oh my God, yes. So like what was the weirdest thing someone yelled at you or the most inappropriate <laughs> time? We were talking about whether it was 
appropriate yeah. for the Hamilton thing. And uh, we basically thought Pence handled well. We didn't have a problem with the Hamilton cast day, but we thought it was. I thought it was rude that like people booed his daughter. Was did you did, did your family ever get booed? Anything weird? There? No, no, not not my family. But there were so many examples. And by the way, uh, I thought I tweeted on this, uh, but I you know. People, my viewpoint was most people don't get any opportunity to speak to somebody yeah. who has power right. in any meaningful way. And they're going to try to seize it when they can. This and was Judy's thing. I, I yeah. disagree with it. Just, but that, you two and are, just, just let it. You, simpatico. That's yeah, like just, so just let it go. Exactly. There, there were times, there were funny stories. One is I, everybody knew I rode a bike. Yeah. And obviously people, there were some people that just bugged. I remember one time I just stopped for a light on Fifth Avenue on my way to City Hall in the morning on my bike. And this uh, woman walks past me, looks at me, does a double take, recognizes me, walks past, continues down the sidewalk another 20 or 30 feet. Then she turns around and yells at me (laughs) and yells at me. I don't even own a bike, she said. It was like oh my, my very presence, right. obviously, just on a bike, totally. And clearly she thought I was telling her she was supposed to ride a bike, which I wasn't. You can get around however you want. I was, you know, but I just want to, if people did choose to you bike. Don't, you don't ride in the middle of the road, do you? Are you considered a bike rider? I am a safe bike rider, and sometimes you have to take a lane because there isn't enough room for someone to safely pass you. Yeah. If that's uh, just the way it is. If I stand on the side and they try and somebody tries to whiz past my elbow, yeah. that's not safe. So if there's room on the side, yes. If there isn't, I will take a lane. So there's a lot of that of everybody wants to talk to you. Well, and people do. So when I was on the Seattle City Council, I ran on renters' rights, right? And yeah. that, God, rents were dirt cheap compared to yeah. now back then. And I go to a doctor. You were ahead of your time, Judy. I was, that's right. You were ahead of your time running on renters' rights. It's always the worst to be ahead of your time. Oh, man, it was. It really is. It's a bad thing in business. It's a bad thing in politics. Drats. But you get credit 20 years later. And the landlords hated me, right? They had an independent expenditure to get me out. They hated me. It was very uh, contentious. It was a contentious election. I win. I'm in office for a couple months. I go to my OBGYN appointment. Oh, no. You're in the stirrups and she starts giving you he, feedback. Wow. And I'm sitting there <laughs> naked. That, that has got to be a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. Oh, my right? God. That has to, oh, that no, is, this is, this that is, is wrong. That is just wrong. Oh, my God. It's a new doctor. I'm there. <laughs> and I hope you got rid of him. There I am. And he said, Hey, are you the Judy Nicastro that just won? That, that's our city council member? I remember looking at him and I said, Um, are you a landlord? <laughs> I was like, no, no. Very I said, good. well, let me ask you, is it a good thing or a bad thing if I'm her? <laughs> he said, oh, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I'm like, yeah, okay, then All I'm right, her. This story is much better than I thought. I thought and you were going to talk about some guy yelling at you no, in the well, he was about a, yeah, how you no. screwed his landlord business. No, he was a hoot. Then he's like, well, here, wait, let's get, can, can we sit up and talk for a minute? I'm like, okay, I guess I'm on your dime now. Like, that's my point. Part of my annoyance of Pence being, you know, or Trump being a baby about Pence was that's the job, man. That's the job. Sometimes I, people, you know, they're annoying. Yeah. They interrupt you. It's not appropriate. This I had hands down the most inappropriate time for a constituent decide to decide to yeah. talk. Yeah, but to it was me. a positive constituent. So well, doesn't that I, give him some credit? <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky. I think I got lucky that time. But it does happen. So, Have you ever been yelled at in an embarrassing oh, situation? Oh, yeah. oh uh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I was at a press conference we were doing down at SeaTac, and and it was I think it was the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, Tom Vilsack was there, and he came up to me and started chatting with me, and he said, "You know, I was a mayor once," 
And I go, really? You know, and mayors automatically yeah, have the like sympathy the with sure, each other, sure. right? Automatically. And we were talking a little bit about it and about you get accosted everywhere. You know, he said, that's what I remember was you'd be in the grocery store and people would talk yep. to you. And he said to me, well, you know, when you're mayor, your city owns you, he said. Yeah. And I went, it was like a light bulb went off in my head because I'd been fighting it a little bit. You know, like, like, come on, there's got to be some boundary line. And then I realized no. there wasn't. I remember I was, then I was down at the Ballard Farmer's Market, and I'm in line to buy my, you know, grass-fed beef at the Ballard Farmer's Market. By the way, that's got to be, like, one of the best things you can do for your Q scores, go to the Ballard Farmer's Market. <laughs> <laughs> it must be just awesome. But I approve. But I love I'm, the Ballard Farmer's so Market. So I'm there in line, and somebody, somebody yells at me. Somebody yells at me something like, hey, Mayor, what are you going to do about those potholes? And somebody else yells at him, hey, it's it's the market. Let them shop, you know, <laughs> right? That's great. And, and I just go with, 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 the, with my recent advice in my head. I just turn around and said, hey, man, when you're a mayor, your city owns you. And everybody laughed, and they felt really good. Yeah, that's totally. Good. That's right? a warm that's because a response. That's the, that is the truth. Yeah. Right. And that is the fundamental. I'm, I'm sorry. I was really upset by the way Trump tweeted about that as as a mayor. I was as a totally. former mayor. I was really upset. He he is kings and monarchs get to say off with their heads to people that are rude to them. Presidents in a democracy, right. in an American democracy, do not get to do that. They have got several hundred million bosses, and they, you have to be polite to your boss at all frigging times. And if, and if they need to speak, and if they speak to you sharply or rudely sometimes, you deal with it because they're the boss. So that's that right. really pissed me off. He doesn't know what his job so is. So of all he these doesn't. things that are going on, that's what pissed you off? Oh, I mean, oh, this God, seems no, so no. frigging minor. Well, as a matter of fact, but that's, that's so big. That was huge. That was so huge. That's big. what he's focusing on. But Seriously. that was so big because those, cause you have to imagine the people in, on that stage, a very diverse group of people, were all they asked was, think of us, please, when you make decisions. Because yeah. we've been hearing you talk. Think of us. And that is just, I'm sorry. So, so that, you've got to be pleased with how Pence handled it. Pence was, Pence was, Pence handled that the right way. Yeah. Yeah. People are allowed to talk to me whenever they darn please. You decide yeah. whether it's rude or not. Yeah. I have to listen to the substance of their comments. Yeah. And that's and uh, because the substance matters. Now, we know, you know, Pence isn't really going to care that much about the substance yeah. based on past history. But at least he said the right thing in public. And if Trump, Trump says, I don't even have to listen to them. People aren't allowed to speak sharply to me. That that goes. Do you, these, do you these sign are, autographs, by the way? These are yes, I, I sign do. autographs. So so you've been at dinner. I'm just wondering. You've been yeah. at dinner having a time thing, and people come up and ask for the autograph, and it's just absolutely. Is there are there no boundaries? On there are no boundaries. Okay, there are no boundaries. There are no, no boundaries. I'm in my driveway of my house playing basketball. But clearly, with the your kids. family is off limits, right? No one can say things about your family. No one can say anything. There's got to be some limits for a public official. There's got to be, but there's no point. Well, small kids are usually off limits. First of all, Trump's freak show of children are totally on limits. Plus, they're involved. So the only thing that's off limits has usually been young children. But hey, this is a great segue. Mike, you recently wrote a very interesting article in Crosscut. Yes. About Trump. And I what recently wrote an article. Happened. You can decide how interesting it was. But yes. Well, I thought it was of really our 10 subscribers, do you think anyone knows what Crosscut is? Can you well, quickly tell them? First of all, we have more than 10 subscribers. We have 11, 11 and a half. Um, <laughs> uh, crosscut.com, I think it is. Dot org. If you Google. Yes. Crosscut.com, I think. Yeah, I think it's crosscut.com is an online news or uh, articles. It's really yeah. Interesting. It's a place for policy wonks, and if you know what a policy wonk is, you probably read Crosscut. It's someone who actually cares about, uh, you know, kind of 
political issues. There's some, there's some great article. There's some yeah, great writing. It's focused on the Northwest, yes. but there's some great writing. And on it's there. stuff that you wouldn't necessarily see in mainstream stuff. So it's a little more cutting edge and interesting. I don't know. It's, I, I find some of their articles more thought provoking. So so you just wrote. I wrote something. an article, talk, and, and, the, and the gist of the article was we were we were just talking. I mean, we were talking earlier about the importance of a city to generate enough um, economic activity to support all of its needs, and. You know, if, if you asked a mayor, you know, what their dream is, it would be for the federal government to show up with dump truck loads of cash to solve all their problems, <laughs> right? And this is just every mayor, every year, looks at the imbalance, and this is in well-off cities and poor cities as well. They look at the imbalance between maintaining all their basic infrastructure, providing basic services, and their tax revenues. Um, we are – this is a, maybe a separate topic, but every city is stretched. In this regard, and Every we all need grants from the state and from federal, and it's 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 unsustainable. You wonder why it's, we it's, have we well, wonder right. why we have this huge deficit because we get amazing amount of handouts from the federal government, um, which is you know great for a city. I wouldn't call them handouts. Not. We're all paying into but, the tax. But yeah, but, it, but but yeah, it's it's a sign, and a lot well, of well, maybe not enough because we have twenty trillion dollar deficit. But keep and, going. And it's just pay, and a lot of times it's just putting band aids on the problems as right. well. When you get right to it, so the solution must be let's go to the feds. Sure. After all, they can print money. Sure, we can't absolutely. do that here. They can just print it up and put it in the dump trucks. And we send don't it need taxes for a bridge. Have the feds they pay, pay for, for it. it. Right. And so you get into you know this kind of. You know, it's it's a growth Ponzi scheme, yep. and I'm I'm stealing this from a guy named Chuck Marone of an outfit called Strong Towns. I recommend reading it. He's a Republican by nature, but it gets at the fundamental imbalance between revenue and expenses ac- across all municipalities, um, Flint, which is extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, and Flint and Detroit are just further along the scale than most sure. other places. Um, but with the that money from the feds was already declining under a Republican Congress and a Democratic uh-huh. president. Under a Republican president and a Republican Congress, it's going to go down even more. The, the flashpoint for this and the hook for the article was um, the claim by Trump that he was going to withdraw federal funding from sanctuary cities, those that um, didn't basically uh, assist in turning over immigrants to the feds. And, and there's a bunch of cities that, that so adopt is, is this that policy. So is that the definition? Because I'm actually not sure about this one. Is it that there is a law and, you know, what would they call Obama, the uh, chief and deporter, which is even though he's seen as very pro-immigration, you know, he deported millions of people. He Two did. million, yeah. He did, he did deport more. So, so basically the federal government – cities have an interest in not – and Seattle hasn't and a lot of cities have not – they do not inquire about immigration status. You know, if somebody wants to call the police because there's something bad happening, you want them to call the police. And if they need to go to the hospital because they're sick, you know, with a contagious disease, you want them to go to the hospital. Yeah. So there's public health and safety reasons why we want everybody to use services without fear of deportation. The next level, though, is the feds. Um, what they like to do is they want to know who you're checking into jail and they want to run uh, a background check on them and then they want to uh, take custody of these people. So that's the other oh. thing. That, that so if an illegal immigrant was arrested, right, then they would want to know the name of that person so they could go take them back, take them to into the custody, wow. detain them, oh, and that's deport intense. them. Right. So that's the that's another level of sanctuary. So there's you know d- degrees of so, sanctuary. So this brings up an interesting thing, which is um, you have um, no one would ever say that. Uh, 
populations, you have good people in populations, you have bad people, you have people who are law-abiding, right. you have people who are criminals. Um, one of the things you have is this, uh, you've heard of Kate's Law, which was this idea that this woman was murdered, I don't know, someone right. in San Francisco was murdered by an illig- uh, illegal immigrant who had a bunch of felonies or a bunch of issues and crime, and they didn't, San Francisco didn't turn him over, and then this person got out and... Um, sure, you know, there was sure. a it's like a Willie Horton type of yeah, thing. So yeah. how do you, um, you know, what, what, when's an, you know, when is enough enough on that one, which is a question is, if someone has a criminal record and they're here in the country illegally, uh, wouldn't those be the first people we'd want to get out or the people who are dangerous? Look, I'm sure there's a place to draw the line. Yeah. But what we know is that right now the line is drawn uh, far, far to yep. um, the less compassionate side of that. And families are torn apart and lots of people are deported. So you even think currently, so forgetting the administration that's coming up, you think that's happening currently? Yeah, that is happening currently. Yeah. So I mentioned sanctuary cities because that was the initial financial threat. But the fact is that a Republican Congress, unchecked by Obama, with everything they've said in the past about what they want to do and the responsibility of the feds to support cities, plus where their base is, right? Their, Their electoral base is rural, it's not urban. Um, cities are going to see significant reductions in spending from the federal government, with or without the sanctuary issue. And the, the gist of my article was, we have to we have to put ourselves on a much more sustainable fiscal footing than we've been. Now, that's something I've always believed. I've always that believed. That sounds very common sense. Yes, it sounds very common sense, and we're not. And but it, it also means that we have to start examining, you know. The, the big projects, you know, like, do we need the most expensive police precinct in the nation? Right. Or can we get by with a less expensive one? Do we, you know, uh, the next bridge project we want? Is that, that an essential bridge? That's the amazing thing about citizens, which is we all want fiscal responsibility, but we all want all the services. And, you know, this was like right. one of the things, which is, you know, we deal with this in Medina. Medina has this, in essence, our own private police force, and they do a great job. But if you look at the amount of police officers we have per capita, it is completely out of whack. We have way more than any other city. Right. And, you know, people will know, oh, we can't give that up. But if you're not going to give things up, then we got to increase taxes or increase revenue. And that's and that's the challenge of leadership, right, is 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 the people that are elected or, you know, who are looking more closely at it. I would argue, you know, good leaders will present those choices to the public as best they can in the hopes that they can get some assistance in being on a stable footing you know, and poor leaders will promise something to everybody and make and put yeah. put it on the next generation. And obviously, politics pushes you hard on the latter choice, right? It's really easy to say, well, we'll just have a new levy, or we'll spend more money on this, or we'll do that, and we'll let the you know, I'm up for a re-election. But I love so. your article. Your article's right. Federal pork is an issue because people get reliant on it. It's like all these right. things you get reliant on it. It's like a drug habit, and you can't get off it. Um, and eventually, it's going to go away. Either by force or by policy, it's going to go away. And then what do you do? And I think you'd like my article, too, based on our prior discussion, because it's not just about what taxes do you raise and what spending cuts do you make, but what are the policies you can change internally to actually generate more economic activity, which will make you more self-sustaining. And I I come back to, you know, um, you well, more housing. Right. We yeah. actually should make it easier to build housing. You bet. You mentioned that I biked here. I biked down 96, then 100, and yeah. I went by all these beautiful, big, you know, houses. Um, you know, not not McMansions, but substantial housings and a beautiful. But like, they have to drive everywhere on on five yeah. lane wide roads. 
I, I can guarantee you that those houses are not generating enough taxes to pay for the maintenance of those roads and signals. Oh, interesting. I can guarantee yeah. you that, right? And, you know, how do we allow some small retail in those developments, you know, which might actually generate more tax revenue per acre, um, some mixed-use development, and reduce the, the costs? And I think cities have to look at that, too. How do you generate more activity on a, on, with less infrastructure and try to bring it back into balance so that we're not um, – so we don't end up where Detroit and Flint have ended up without a tax base to take care of what they already have, much less – try to shoulder the burden that's going to be coming to them in an era of declining federal funds. And I don't think that era is ending anytime soon. I mean, it was even happening under Obama. This is, this is a long-term trend because it's unsustainable financially. It has been unsustainable financially for some time. And the sooner that cities fi figure out how to stand on their own two feet rather than look for somebody else to bail them out, the better. Well, I will tell you that that is um – very common sense. Thank you for saying that. I, I am under the belief that we as a country um, need to start thinking very, very hard about how we are going to grow this economy going forward in terms of getting more uh, people into the workforce with higher paying jobs so we have more of a tax base so we can continue these services. But right. also the other piece of it is reducing the infrastructure costs that we have to carry because that is, when I mentioned growth Ponzi scheme, kind of expanding outwards um, – is the math on this just doesn't just doesn't what do you mean? work? Well, if you look at like if you looked at your land use patterns, um, and now I'm stealing from a guy named Joe Minicozzi from an outfit called Urban Three. They do some fabulous analysis. But if we looked at our land use like a farmer looks at yields, right? Like what's the tax yield per acre, right? Yeah. Single family homes, the tax yield per acre, tiny, right? Multifamily a little more. The Walmart, you know, it's probably four times bigger because the Walmart's got a huge footprint. Right. Right. And then if you look at a small, if you look at a mixed use building in Greenwood. You are pushing for the urbanization of America for tax reasons, which makes sense. Well, it, it, it turns out that a, a mixed, you know, a three story, a four story mixed use building is going to generate more tax dollars per in Greenwood will generate far more tax dollars per acre than the Costco does nearby wow. per acre. Right. Right. And it will require a lot less infrastructure because you've just got less road frontage. Well, and so this is just, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm going E.F. Schumacher Small is beautiful here. <laughs> but if we go, yeah, you're old enough to laugh. You know, I don't know if the, you know, the youngsters here. But, but if we, we built a pattern in which you keep, you know, extending outward and extending outwards and the developer will build you the roads. Say, right. hey, isn't this great? You get free roads. You get new houses. You got a new tax. You know, you got more taxes. That – that funds you. That's like a boost to the budget for a little while. But then 30, yeah. 40 years, 25, 30 years, that road needs to be replaced. And I can guarantee you that the cul-de-sacs are not generating enough tax revenue to pay for it. And when you do the math, they did the math. They did something in Lafayette. This uh, Joe Minicosi and Urban yep. Three looked at Lafayette, and they compared where does the tax revenue come from and where is it spent. And it turns out that obviously downtown generates the most. Mixed-use business districts with apartment buildings generate, you know, are also hot spots. Yeah. They actually generate more than it costs, and it's the single-family neighborhoods. So it turns out that even in poor Lafayette, Louisiana, it's the poor neighborhoods are subsidizing the wealthy neighborhoods in terms of wow. infrastructure. Because you have more population density. Because yeah. you have more population density and less infrastructure yeah. to support. And they're actually – so it's not like – 
you know, the, the wealthy Of course, what suburbs. you're saying is completely uh, against the antithesis of the American dream, which is go build yourself a, you know, big house on a, you know, a big, a well, big acreage. Well, you can call that the American dream, but I would, I would point that common sense, thrift, and self-reliance are American values yeah, as well and were historically until we entered an era of, you know, subsidizing through road construction and everything else a – and putting into but how big how big is this an, how big an issue is this I mean, very interesting great conversation how big an interest you know economic interest you want to fix the American economy and fix a deficit problem you uh, have to address military spending sure you have to invest in entitlements where would this land use fall on kind of the list of things I, to do I think because so much money is generated and spent locally you know collectively and and I guess where it falls on my list is. You know, I, I guess I can write a letter to my congressman about military spending. Right. But as a participant in a city, I think I actually have some chance to shape shape the policies a little better. And, and we – it's the government that's closest to us. And I, to me, I think this is really, really big. So I'm a big – I mean, absolutely, we should cut military If people spending. want to hear more of kind of these ideas, I think – first of all, thank you for coming on. I thought you were very yeah. thought-provoking, great topics. Where can they read your articles? Where can they hear what you're up to? Well, I have a podcast called You, Me, Us Now, and uh, it's uh, you can find it on iTunes, uh, You, Me, Us Now with Mike McGee, and I interview activists wow. about how they got involved in, in Yeah, it's great. Activism. I've heard a couple episodes. It's great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of – I kind of took a hiatus for the summer. I've got to get her started up again <laughs> and get some new guests and get rolling. You have your article on CrossCut. I write, I write for CrossCut uh, periodically mm-hmm. as well. So I guess those and are the Twitter. two places. Can we see you back Twitter? in politics at any time? You know, I – don't, I really don't know. That's not a question <laughs> well, that's answerable at this all time. All right. Well, if not, if you're, if that's not on the, the immediate future, I would encourage you to look at the Washington State Democratic Party takeover. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know more about what's going on. See, over uh, there. Something's happening, but we need some good leadership there. I've, I've never well, really played in the Democratic Party. Well, maybe it's time. Politics. You know, the, the party <laughs> there structure. There is a politics. DNC open job. If you yeah, there that. is. Yeah. yeah. Do, do have you uh, worked for CNN before? I have not worked for CNN before. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, hey, Mayor, thanks so much for coming on. It was great to talk with you. I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I, I um, didn't know we were going to get both sides of the political spectrum in this conversation. I, 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 I you're you a good t- sport. You're very smart. <laughs> he, he is a Seattle Republican, from what I could no, tell. He's not, very pro-business. Very what, pro-business. No, he's, no. See, that's where you're wrong. That's where you're wrong. Democrats in Seattle are sensible business. What they are not for, they are. They're sensible business. They are not for giving away the entire shop. And that's the problem with the Republicans. They want everything for free. They don't want to spend any of their own money. And they want everything to work beautifully and perfectly. What he is is a sensible Democrat. And since I have the controls, I am going to leave it at that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>